Well, good morning. I'm so glad you're here, and uh, I want to do my very best to not mess that up. <laughs> it's been so great to just worship with our church family this morning. We want to continue in a, in a posture, in a perspective of worship, of declaring God's excellencies. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus. We are delighted that you're here. Listen, I, we say it a lot, and that's just because we mean it. Um, you didn't just get here by accident. You didn't just stumble into the third floor of a 1949 Elks Lodge to hear some Bible. This is where God has you because he really does want to impart truth to you, to me, and to us, and that we would leave this place changed. So that's our expectation, is that the living God, the God, as Francis Schaeffer would say, the God who is there, that he would speak to us mysteriously but marvelously through his word as his people by the Spirit. So with that, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to read this chapter, this passage, in its entirety because I want you to hear it. I want you to feel it, receive it, let it kind of wash over you. And then I'm going to do my best to efficiently unpack it, we'll apply it, we'll be done. We're in our fall sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've made it all the way into chapter 4. So in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, is it a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court? In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Do you hear the inflection of my voice? That's intended to help. Okay. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you would reign, so that we might share the rule with you, snark, snark, nyuk, nyuk, hearty, har, har. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you were wise in Christ. We are weak, but you were strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Are you sure? But to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. What is going on with this passage? Why is this portion of this letter in our Bible? What is God trying to say? And what are we supposed to take away? Well, for that, we have to rewind quite a lot. For that, we have to understand, why is Paul issuing such a stern and strong correction? What's the problem? In short, the problem is that the church back then, just imagine, was trying to behave exactly like the world. I know, I know it's hard for us to even, like, wow, but it's happening then, and so it's an instructive for us now. Why? Why was the church doing that? Well, for that, we have to go back even further. So if you'll bear with me just a moment. Once upon an incalculably ancient time, in some place, somewhere, somehow, there lived God. And he was surrounded by glory. And he was surrounded by beauty and purity and light and energy and life. And all was right. All was perfection. It's described as, as the high, holy mountain of God, where God, three persons in one, and there is one God eternally existing, and there are three persons, and there is one God. And it existed in perfect community of joy, and all was glory, splendid, and wonder. But one of his servants decided to go a different direction. We read about this in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. God speaking to what we would now refer to as our enemy, the adversary, Satan, the devil. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and I want you to pay particular attention to these five I will statements because they have been the refrain, they have been the chorus, they have been the drumbeat of the world for thousands upon thousands of years. You said in your heart, and as you read these, and I'm not going to read them just yet, I want you to experience the pinprick of conviction that I've gotten to enjoy all week long as I've read these words and go, oh, golly, that's me. Oh, wowzers, that's me. But maybe it's just me. We shall see. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will be God in my life is the new Eric translation of those five I wills. I will ascend, and if that means I've got to put my hand on your scalp to do so, 
so be it. I will be sovereign of my sphere. I will be God of my globe. Now, I would never say those words out loud, but it sure feels that way when you watch me drive in traffic. Sure feels that way when I'm having a conversation with my wife or with a person just in the community or when I'm spending time on my computer or watching TV programs or whatever it might be. I will make myself like El Elyon, the Most High God. And ever since that introduction of evil into the world, the world has struggled. There's a companion passage to Isaiah 14. It's in Ezekiel 28. And in Ezekiel 28, the enemy is referred to as a guardian cherub. He had responsibility. It's interesting. This guardian of God's treasure, he introduced evil, grasping unto oneself what rightly belongs to God and God alone. And the ripples have rolled forward like a growing wave for millennia. Ever since, humanity has believed the lie, one way or another, that what they are and what they have is not enough, that God is holding out on them. That's why we have the catastrophic fall in Genesis 3. They believe the same exact lie, that God was holding out, and so they grasp for more, always attempting to ascend in one way or another, usually above everyone and anyone else. But as it turns out, that path, that approach, that strategy has never worked out once, not ever. We think there's been about 15 billion people that have ever existed on planet Earth, and not one of them has found success going that route. Oh, they might have accrued massive amounts of material wealth temporarily, but then they died. All of them. Don't tell me about Elisha. Chariot of fire does not seem pleasant, okay? They all died. Not one of them was able to accrue resources unto themselves such that they had right standing before God. Not a single one. In the grand scheme of things, were blades of grass. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man and a woman. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. God's ways are not our ways. They often don't make sense to us, but his ways are the only ways that actually work. They are the ways of Jesus, what the scriptures might refer to as the Christ life. So what is the Christ life? Well, that sets us up for our big idea this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and it goes like this. The way up is down. The way up is down. That is a distinctly non-American, non-Western, non-Greek truth, but make no mistake, it is the truth of Scripture, illumined by God's Spirit, demonstrated in God's Son, worked out in God's church. The way up is down. So we are in our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. For our working theme thus far has been imperfect church, perfect gospel. Remember that the Apostle Paul came through Corinth on his second missionary journey. He was out of gas and on fumes. He lands in Corinth. He parks there for 18 months, and he plants a church. With the assistance, with the nurturing and the caregiving of Priscilla and Aquila, he's there 18 months. He finishes off a vow. He sails back to Syrian Antioch, where he recuperates and rests. And then he launches on his third missionary journey. He goes back to the churches of Galatia. Then he parks in Ephesus, in what is today uh, western Turkey. And he's there for about three years. While he's there, he gets a report about the church in Corinth. Things aren't good. He writes them a letter. They don't like it. They write him a letter and give a report. Paul then writes this letter we have. We call it 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second letter that he writes. And he's going to issue some pretty stinging corrections to them. 
He's sitting in Ephesus. The recipients of that letter, Ephesians, was all about the church universal. But as he's sitting in Ephesus, writing to the church at Corinth, this is about the local church. This is about that body of believers that gather together in a particular proximity to one another. And they do life together in Christ. This is Paul's correction for them. Whereas Colossians was dealing with a church in the eastern part of the Roman Empire that was dealing with all kinds of mysticisms and angelisms and Gnosticisms and isms and schisms. Corinthians is dealing with the West. Corinthians is dealing with Western civilization, individualism, rugged individualism, humanism, the elevation of self, the celebration of me. It's all about me. It's the very first song from Isaiah 14. Into that, the apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 4. So let me rewind this. We're going to walk through this very, very briefly. Apparently, there had been some accusation. The people of Corinth started to actually not be so fond of Paul because there were different orators and rhetoricians that were coming through town. The sophists, they were called. They were pros. It was the, the Brad Pitt and the Scott Gills coming through Corinth. And they're all like good looking. And they're incredibly gifted as they speak. And, and the people are going, well, hey, what, what, what's up with that Paul character? He's bow-legged. He's bald. He's unibrowed. He's got a big nose. He's got ooey gooey eyeballs. Like, we, we want Scott again. We want Brad Pitt again. What is going on? And so they start to divide in the church over personalities. The whole point so far is Paul saying, listen, I don't want there to be division. Don't you know who and whose you are? You are the bride and the body of Christ. First Corinthians, you might look at it and go, gosh, there's a lot of corrections here. Yeah, chapters one through six is just one rebuke after another. He rebukes them and he rebukes them and he rebukes them and he rebukes them. But then starting in chapter seven, he begins to say, now concerning X. And then I'll say, now concerning Y. So first Corinthians, you might say, is rebuke and response. There's a bunch of rebukes, first six chapters, and then from seven through 16, he's just answering the questions that they sent back in response to his first letter. So we're still gonna do two more weeks of rebuke, woohoo! and then finally we'll get to some kind of questions that they were asking that they didn't understand. But right here, chapter four, Paul says, this is how one should regard us. And he's speaking of the apostles. Because they were saying, hey, Paul, why don't you do more? Why don't you, I mean, why don't you go keto, Paul? Come on, why don't you get a little bit more swole? Why don't you, why don't you pump some iron? Why don't you, you know, do something about the, can I get you a hanky, Paul? That's gross. You should look more like we want you to look. We need a hero. We need a champion. We need a representative. Paul says, oh, I'll tell you how you should think about us. Two ways, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ. This is one of those fun times it, Paul uses a word that he will use nowhere else in the whole of the New Testament. This word servant, it's not the typical word for servant that we would say is diakonos, through the dust, like a servant or a deacon or a minister. Nope, this is huperetes. This is one of the funnest words. This has the idea of a guy who's been chained to the very bottom of a Roman warship, the trireme. Perhaps you remember those of you who were alive when the whole world was black and white. You remember Ben-Hur? Who are you, Judah Ben-Hur? You remember Ben-Hur? It's okay. He gets captured. He's a slave. And they chain him in the trireme, not on the top level. Oh, no. Not on the middle level. Nay, nay, little reindeer. He goes to the very bottom. 
and there's just metal grate above him and metal grate above that. And all of the slaves above him are not particularly hygienic. Can I get an amen? And he's sitting down there below all that. He has the shortest oars because he's farthest down. He's working the hardest. All the guys above him are not exactly Martha Stewart, okay? It's disgusting, it's gross, and he's having to work hard, and if the ship gets hit or if the ship begins to go down, surprise, he dies first. Paul says, yeah, that's how you should think of me. I am a third row trireme galley slave. Here, joyfully. Now, he's not being overly dramatic to make him, oh, woe is me, what a wretch, what a wretch, what a wretch. No, 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 make no mistake. He's elevating the glory and the grandeur of King Jesus. A Roman centurion or a Roman soldier or a Roman slave even understood the enormity of Caesar. And Paul's going, yeah, no, you, you want me to be somebody? Let me tell you who we are as leaders, as ministers in the church of Jesus Christ. I am a third-level galley slave. And he says, he goes on, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now he means something. When Paul will say the mysteries of God, he means something very specific. Stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is somebody who is entrusted to manage or distribute some property that he or she does not own. Christ is the owner. What's the treasure? It is nothing less than the gospel. It's a mystery because the exact nature of the gospel wasn't completely clear in the Old Testament, but God drew back the curtain. He revealed it for such a time as this. And since the first coming of Christ, it's clear to those who are believers, and it is being revealed to those who are unbelievers. It is an open secret. We say it all the time. We'll say it again. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. The gospel is made manifest because Christ crucified. That's it. That's the thing. That's the mystery that nobody could fully put together. You would never just make this stuff up. A crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah, that is insane. That's the mystery. And we are mere managers. We are administrators. We are distributors and dispensers. That's how you should think of us, Paul says. Then verse two, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. No, praise God, this does not mean that they are sinless. If that was the case, there would be nobody in that role, including Paul, certainly me. No, they have to be faithful to what they proclaim. They have to be declarers of the truth of God's word and demonstrators of the truths of God's word. Incidentally, can I just say, like break fourth wall here? Nothing makes me more nervous and distasteful than having to preach about preachers. It's the absolute worst. What about what's expected of preachers, those who give the gospel? But this is what we are to be very, very clear and careful about. Stewards, he says, verse two, very briefly, are required to be found faithful. Why is he saying that? Because clearly there were people in Corinth that were garnering influence and power that were not found faithful. What they were saying wasn't matching what they were doing. So he's talking immediately about this passage. The apostles then, and ultimately, yes, throughout the rest of the church age, also anybody who's in Christian leadership whatsoever. This helps us to navigate the challenges of the church here and now. Now, I would just say this. This is one of those passages that you read and you go, oh man, I have got a lot of griefs with my church. I'm gonna unload the chamber. No, praise God. I, I seriously, and I mean this, hand to God. I've been praying like, God, thank you. 
Thank you. We've got a, a church in five locations and specifically at this campus. This has not been our issue. Praise God. And so let's be on the offensive. Let's be on the alert, on our toes, head on a swivel to prevent this kind of drift. Because there is a gravity to all of our depravity, me first. And so I'm so thankful that this is not a stinging rebuke for our context, but it sure needs to be a bright red warning sign of, hey, danger, danger. This is the way of the world and of the church left unchecked. So we always want to check it. Verse three, I'm going to pick up speed here. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. They were beginning to elevate their opinion of what was good, of what they would put that little blue thumb on. They were beginning to say, hey, we like this, we don't like that. Paul, we think you could do better. Paul, we think you should do this. Paul, we think that. And he's like, I, you, don't, you don't get to judge me. I don't even judge myself. In fact, no human court does. I don't judge myself. Four, verse four, I am not aware of anything against myself. I have a clear conscience. But, he says, I am not thereby acquitted. Just because I don't know of anything, I'm certainly a dirtbag. I've certainly got sin issues in my life. Some thought, word, indeed. I have a clear conscience. Nothing held against me. But that doesn't make me innocent. That is up to Jesus. Now, by the way, that is a good way to live your life. Having a clear conscience. Understanding there's probably some stuff that my assessment of myself is either inadequate or it's incomplete, maybe incorrect, but to have a clear conscience. It's the best pillow, as they say. Paul says, I, I trust Jesus, the crucified Christ, risen, reigning on high. I trust him. That is his issue. Therefore, he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. In your opinion, your worldly, Western, fallen opinion, you're starting to say, hey, that sermon was good. It made me feel such and thus. That guy who came through 1 Corinth, he was this, he was kind of boring. He only had two points in a poem, boo. And so you're starting to elevate the norms of the world or did that song hit the bridge just so and I got the godly goosebumps? Yeah, you're, no, 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 no. Don't try to judge those things. You have no idea what God is doing in and through his word by his spirit among his people. Don't pronounce judgment before the time. Now, this is one of those delicate, weird 21st century church issues Judge not lest you be judged. It's become more popular than John 3.16. I haven't seen it between the goalposts at a football game by a guy in a clown wig yet, but just people trot it out there all the time. Judge not lest you be judged. And yet, Jesus says all the time, make discerning judgments about all things. That's 1 Corinthians 2. That's, hey, pull the log out of your own eye before you judge. But you certainly should appraise. You should evaluate. You should make discerning judgments. What usually happens in this issue of judging, Jesus will come after people who are moralistic, legalistic, Pharisee-type characters who are trying to elevate themselves by condemning others. But just as many passages, if not more, command the people of God the covenant community, the messianic people, to think, to evaluate, to appraise, to operate, act, live, love, and relate in wisdom. So should we judge? No, but should we judge? Absolutely. It requires wisdom. It requires walking in the spirit, being armed with the word, being encouraged by the people. That does how life works. That's the Christ way, what Paul's talking about. This Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one, <laughs> everyone who claims to be a leader in a Christian context, Jesus <sighs> knows our motives. Every 
single one. You want to be a preacher? You want to be a Sunday school teacher? You want to be a life group leader? You want to be a Bible study leader? Let me read this again. Before the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. <sighs> then each will receive his soul smacked from the risen Lord Jesus whose eyes are like blazing fire. He will burn you. It's kind of what I would assume it would say. Here's the gospel. This verse shouldn't be in my Bible. This verse is in my Bible. This verse is in your Bible. Can I just tell you something shocking? Because I, I know the shame sandwich that I eat every time I'm about to get up and preach, and certainly after I preach. But listen to what this verse says. Then he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, God loves the message of the gospel even more than I do. And God is the kind of God that'll take this babble, this whatever utterance, and he will use it in a mysterious, marvelous, massive way that I can't even comprehend, but he's going to use it. And you know what he's gonna do? He's the only one that does the work. Sober clear. He is the only one that does the work. And then I get commendation for it. Sign me up. Now, we still have to be faithful. Paul's made that very clear in verse two. All of us do. When we're teaching our kids, when we're having Bible time with our neighbors or our grandkids in our children's building. Yes, yes, yes. And be faithful. God is so thankful for this going on. It would be up to me. I would have angels proclaim the gospel. I feel like they'd be pretty articulate. I feel like they'd be pretty convincing. Like, you can just see Gabriel in the foundry and some hipster walking, be like, yeah, man, I don't know. And Gabriel's like, this is what happened. Yeah, I'm totally in on that. But when I do it, they just look at me and go, gosh, how old are you anyway? But God uses we flawed, fallen vessels for his purpose, and he alone gets the glory. And then shockingly, here's the gospel, he gives us commendation, literally praise it's a bit of a surprise. It's a bit of a shock. It's very good news. Well, let me pick up some speed here. Verse six. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos. I'm just trying to make a point. He's saying, this has just been an illustration. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn. Underline that word, learn. It's the Greek word, mathetes. It's where we get our word for disciple. That you would apprentice, that you would look to somebody else and you would follow in their example. Why? Because they've looked to somebody else and they followed in that example. And they've looked to somebody else and they have followed in that example. I'm applying this so that you would learn. That's the punchline. That's the payoff. That's the how come. Why is this in our Bible? So that we would learn the Christ way. That the way up is actually down. And you only see that when you know somebody, love somebody, trust somebody, and you see their life, and though it is struggle, though it is suffering, though it is painful at times, you go, that's the Christ life. And you mathetes, you disciple, you learn from them. I'm telling you guys this, because I don't want you to follow these false leaders, these 10,000 teachers we'll hear about in just a moment in Corinth. I want you to follow Apollos. I want you to follow me. I've got no beef with Apollos. I've got no beef with Peter that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That was an early expression in the church. That's not a quotation of scripture. Some of your translations might have some quotation marks, not go beyond what is written. It's not a quotation of scripture. That was an early saying in the early church, and we know from inscriptions and all kinds of things. But what were they saying? Do not go beyond the text. Keep your finger in your Bible, is the way we would say it in the 21st century. 
Don't go beyond what is written, which is what? The Old Testament at that time. There are truths in the Old Testament revealed to the church that we are to live on as today. I don't want you guys to go beyond to try to exceed the teaching that is in the text. Stick with what is written, Paul says, that none of you may be puffed up. One of the master themes that gets repeated again and again. Why? Because he's writing to a Western context that you would get puffed up, that you would get proud, that you would get arrogant, that you would ascend and be like the Most High in favor of one against another. Oh, well, I follow Paul. Paul, that guy, he's got oozy eyes. I follow Apollos. He's good looking. And then you get all arrogant because of the person you're following. No, you're missing the point. You are on a great grand adventure in missing the point. Verse seven, he asks these three rhetorical questions. Now, the translation of the first question is a little bit strange, so let me help. In the ESV, it says, for who sees anything different in you? (laughs) Really, it's Who actually thinks you are superior? Obvious answer, nobody. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. Everything you have was a gift. No, 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 I'm really good at my job. Surprise, you were given a brain. You were given hands. You were given legs. You were given a heart. All that you have, you were given. If you then did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That would be called foolishness. Already, you have all that you want. There is this Corinthian uh, Proverbs that say, we are rich, we are full, we are kings, because they were so proud of being Corinth. Corinth, massive city, 250,000 citizens, another 400,000 slaves. None of the citizens did any work. The slaves did all the work. And so there are all these little things. We are Corinth. We are rich. We are full. We are kings. And so Paul's throwing that right back in their faces. This is sarcasm. I'm not recommending this as a preaching technique. I'm just saying he's an apostle. I'm just reading what the text says, okay? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Gosh, I wish you guys were kings. That'd be dope. I'd love to come to Corinth and have holiday with you guys. Woohoo! No. Now, we say all the time around here, we are from the future, We are from God's coming kingdom and we are ambassadors, emissaries, and agents of that coming kingdom and we live the Christ way now. That does not mean that this life doesn't have suffering and hardship. And now Paul's going to do something amazing. He's gonna use another illustration that is so graphic, it kind of should take our breath away. Let's see if I can do this justice in verse nine. For I think, you can almost say he puts the pen down for a minute and goes, you guys in Corinth, you think you... You think it's over? You think it's... (sighs) I think God made us apostles. And then listen how he describes this. Verse nine. I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, he uses some technical terms there. There's a, a Roman expression called the triambuantai. It's fun to say. The triambuantai was how mass media happened in the day. They didn't have news broadcasts. They didn't have social media. And so when a Roman army went out to conquer, the only way the citizenry could know actually what happened and how it went was they would wait and gather for the triambuantai. The triambuantai, you can hear it in the word, it's a triumph parade. And the conquering general, whether it was uh, Pompey or it was Antonius, whoever it might have been, the conquering general would ride into Rome victorious. And they would, they would erect this massive arch. Perhaps if you've been to Rome, you've seen some of these arches that are in Rome. And the entire procession would march under the arch. Why? Because the soldiers had had to do grotesque, 
heinous, horrible things. And the thought was, if we march the whole procession under the arch, they will be cleansed. Isn't that interesting that even 2,000 years ago in the secular pagan world, they realized something has to atone for what I've had to do? And so the, the general, the conquering general and the king would march through and there would be all of his generals, then all of his officers, then all of the soldiers, and then would become all of the captured treasure, the wild animals that they might have gotten in Carthage in North Africa or some of the animals that they'd gotten in the Germanic tribes up in the north or wherever. And then behind that would be the conquered king, naked, chained in a cage. Behind that king would be all of his generals and officers and soldiers and then the citizens that they just abducted. And last of all, at the very, very back of the three on Buontai, the very back of the procession were the captured slaves of the other people and they were lion food. That's all they were. And then as you're being dragged, you're naked, you're beaten, you've been abused in unspeakable ways, you know all you're going, you have a one-way ticket to the center of the arena and the gladiators are going to hack you to bits or the lions and the bears are going to eat you to bits. Paul says, you know, you guys are wanting me to pump iron and to juice all my food and all that. Listen, I'm pretty sure God's got me at the back of the parade. And I want you to follow me. See, the way up is down. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ. They go, oh, but you are all so wise, aren't you? We are weak, but you are strong, or so you think. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul said in Ephesus, going, if I could get to you guys, I would, and I, and I will. Verse 11, to the present hour. He says that as a connection back, because they thought they were gonna live it up like kings until Jesus came. Paul says, no, 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 to this very moment, here's my end time singing, to this very moment, we hunger and we thirst, and we're poorly dressed, and we're buffeted, and we're homeless, and we labor. The labor was disdainful and distasteful to the citizens. They didn't do any work. Working with our own hands, when reviled, we bless. That was uncommon. If someone, someone shames you or curses you or, or criticizes you, you give it back to them openly and loudly so that you could protect your reputation. That's just in Greece, though. We would never do that in these days. Mm-mm. We bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The expression, the refuse of all things, the little bits of ick that are left on your plate that are scraped off into the trash. And so Paul says, that's what we have become willingly. Why? Because we hate ourselves? No, because of the glory and the grandeur of great King Jesus. He's worth that. And that's what Christ did. Verse 14, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, eh, maybe a little bit, but to admonish you, to edify you, to build you up as my beloved children. I, I, I want what's best for you. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides, literally you have 10,000 tutors, what the text actually says. Did they literally have 10,000 tutors? No. Paul's saying you've got all these people who are coming in the church who are trying to direct you and guide you this way and that way, but why are you weaponizing your criticism at me? I'm the guy who gave you the gospel. In a sense, I sired you. And he's very careful to say, you have all these guys in Christ. You do not have many fathers. For, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. Paul's a steward, a dispenser, a distributor of the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. I don't know. That's like the worst marketing job of all time. It's the worst resume. Let's see, I'm scum of the earth. I'm plate leavings. 
Uh, I'm a smudge. I am thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm homeless. I get beat up all the time. I get cursed. Be like me, Paul says. Be an imitator. And he'll say this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He'll say it twice in the book of Philippians. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the Christ way. That's the Christ life. And it is distinctly different, upside down and inverted than the Western world's way. But there's a way that seems right unto a man and that way leads to death and destruction. Imitate me. That's the imperative. That's the exhortation of this whole chapter. That's why I sent you Timothy. <laughs> Timothy's going, oh man, are you sure about this? That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of, I love this, my ways in Christ. You know, he's dictating this letter. And Timothy's right there with him in Ephesus. Timothy ends up being the pastor at Ephesus. And I love that Timothy's standing there as Paul's dictating this and Timothy's hearing Paul go, so I'm sending you him. My beloved son. This is great leadership. He's gonna teach you my Christ ways in the Lord. He's gonna, he's gonna show you how to imitate me. You think Timothy didn't just... It's amazing. It's such great leadership as I teach them everywhere in every church. This isn't just for you, Corinthians. This is about every local church everywhere. The way up is down. Some are arrogant as though I was not coming. <laughs> yeah, some are being all cocky as though I'm not gonna come back. But when I come back, I'm gonna just come and drip eye guzz on some of those people, right? I got a lot of scores to settle. But why is, why is Paul so angry? Because the church and the ministry thereof matters so massively. But I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, God is king. I am not. The Lord is king, if he wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. I don't care what they're saying. I don't care about their winsome sayings. Where is their power? And that is a call back to the middle of chapter one. The power of God, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. Are you making much of a crucified Christ? Are you making much of the very son of God comes, lives, suffers, dies, is buried, is dead, rises again. That's power. Everything else is just gum flapping, calorie burn, nothing else. Verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Oh, I'm coming. How shall I show up? Now, he's not being super threatening and he's not being gross. He's going, listen, we can do this one of two ways. I'm going to offer you carrot or I'm going to offer you stick. But what I'm not going to do is nothing. This is not your program. This is not your purpose. This is what God is doing in the world. And listen, this matters massively. And I want you to remember, Corinthians, like I was with you for 18 months, the way up is down. So why is this passage in our Bible? What do we take away? Let me give you three very quick principles on all of this. Number one goes like this. We never go or grow beyond the gospel. We never grow or grow beyond the gospel. Just in case any of us have forgotten, remember the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. The gospel is what Paul calls the mysteries of God, God's plan from eternity to send his son to literally become our sin and shame and death and to impart his righteousness to us. The Corinthian believers had likely been converted in the most incredible ways, Jews and Gentiles alike, men and women, slaves and freemen, Greeks and Romans, so very diverse. And then as life together began to occur and after a few years, they began to drift from what they had originally believed and what had brought them into the family of God. 
Oh, that they, they still certainly held to the power of God to reconcile a human being to God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. But the gospel stopped being the power of their everyday walking around lives and how they experienced church and one another. They began, just imagine, to add human assumptions about how the world really works into the church. And almost the immediate effect was division and disunity. And they started fighting about minor issues. And inevitably, somebody said what always gets said when children fight, oh yeah, my dad can beat up your dad. Truth be told, my boys were never actually able to say that because I mean, really. But as they began to faction and fraction off, they started, well, yeah, you know what? Well, Paul says, oh yeah, well, Apollos says, oh yeah, well, Peter says, and it's so bad for the church. It's such a terrible witness. They were trying to go beyond the gospel as if it was just what got them saved. It isn't. It's also what makes us live in the here and the now day by day. The gospel is what makes us think and feel rightly of ourselves every day. I am enough. You dirty devil. I am enough. I have more than enough. You dirty devil, shut your pie hole. I lack for, want nothing. I have right standing before God. Nothing between me and my God. If he was to show up right now, I would hug him. Do you feel that way about the coming of Jesus? It just, I'm sure there's a bunch of garbage that I don't even know about. I don't care. That, that got nailed to the cross. I am enough. I have enough. I have right standing before God. He literally could not love me more or less. And all of that then impacts my relationships in my home, in my work, in my church, in my community. I don't have to suppress anybody's scalp to raise me. I have all. I am all. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel means my life matters and has eternal significant purpose. And I'm a part of something so big that nobody else could ever dream it up. This is ministry, again and again, reciting and reminding and reflecting the gospel. The way up is down. We descend into the gospel and the Lord God raises us up. Number two goes like this. Our creed and conduct connect at the cross. Kind of proud of that one. A lot of C's there. Our creed and our conduct connect at the cross. Perhaps you've had the experience personally or you've seen it in somebody else. There's a distance between what we claim to believe and how we actually behave. <laughs> Confessionally, it happens to me all the time, probably to you, probably to us, and pretty much everyone everywhere. Why is that? Are we really that schizophrenic? And the answer is yes. We live according to the flesh rather than walking by the Spirit. Very quickly, I remember a friend of mine and Susan's girl named Kelly uh, was in our church, and Kelly, uh, really her, her stock and trade was just rebellion. If you said, don't touch that hot stuff, she would hug it. She, I mean, she just, her whole life ethos was rebellion. I'm gonna do what everyone tells me I shouldn't do. I'm gonna find my own way. Well, she found herself in jail after a series of bad choices and her cellmate just so happened to be another girl from her school. This girl was a Mormon. And Kelly sees this Mormon girl and goes, wait, what are you doing in here? Aren't you a Mormon? Aren't you supposed to like be good or something? And the girl said, well, I've actually got a horrible relationship with my family and I'm trying to get away from them by any means I possibly can. But what about you? Don't you go to a Bible church? What are you doing in here? And Kelly said, oh, I'm just not really behaving. I'm not really living what I believe right now. To which Susan and I said to her later, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. You and I can't help it. We will always live according to what we really 
believe. Not just what we claim to believe. See, her creed and her conduct, her doctrine and her doing, her belief and her behavior didn't line up. And so that revealed a disconnect that inevitably results in conflict and collapse of the mind. So what's the answer? Well, clearly, just try harder to be better. No, no, no. The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified. Look at the cross. Look at the cross and really ask yourself the hard question. Do I really believe that this happened? Am I literally persuaded that the Son of God removed my sin and shame and gave me all the wealth of heaven and that I am free and forgiven and loved and accepted? Our behavior has to be a byproduct of our belief. We don't simply behave ourselves to avoid consequence. We're walking around demonstrations of transformed lives but our eyes fall and our daily routines drift because of the gravity of our depravity. And before long, we stop considering the cross and we grasp upward for more. But the way up is down. Just as Christ descended even to the cross, so too do we. Third point. The church is the demonstration of the cross. I don't know what you think about when you think about church. Maybe you think casseroles, maybe you think splitting over carpet color, I don't know. But the church is the demonstration of the cross. I find it interesting that Paul gets as stirred up as he does, so much that he's willing to close this section with, I'm bringing a whip. That's like every pastor's favorite verse, but we don't actually mean that. But like, wow, Paul is lathered up about this. Promise you, that approach is not to be found in any church growth textbook, right? Like I'm bringing a whip with me. That doesn't usually increase attendance. But Paul understood what we have to understand. In this age, the church is the demonstration and the showplace of the glory of God. And how is that declared? By putting on display a whole bunch of people, different people, who would otherwise have nothing in common with one another and redeem them utterly so that the world can see this kind of transformation and life really is offered freely to them and to everybody the church matters massively. It's not a society or a club or a cause. It is the bride of Christ that declares and demonstrates the gospel. See, the way up is down. The church is the arena and the area and from which we each live the Christ life, the Christ way that Paul talked about. And he said that Timothy would show them that Paul had seen in Christ, which Paul preached and persistently did so and passionately. What is, what is God like? Gospel of John says, look at Jesus. He makes the Father known. What is Jesus like? To an extent, you look at Paul and follow Paul as he follows Christ. What were Paul and Peter and the apostles like? To an extent, <laughs> this is crazy, look at the leaders of this church and follow them as they follow Christ. This is his meaning in verse 6 when he says that they are to learn, they are to disciple, to not go beyond the word. The secular world outside might not agree or appreciate that, they might not appreciate what the church stands for, but that's because we are the proclamation and demonstration of the cross of Christ. We've said this multiple times. It is foolishness to them and a stumbling block. It does not coincide with their worldview at all. And so we pray that God would ready them. So if the Holy Spirit moves in the life of a person that is darkened in sin and shame and ultimately death, there must be a place the church, to which God can lead them in, which they enjoy and experience the gospel. So much is at stake, we take this seriously. The way up is down. If nothing else, consider the Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to death, 
even death on a cross, he went low. And God gave him the name above every name. See, your glory is not your project. His glory is your project. And we trust that at the last, he will raise us up. So our choice day by day, do we choose glory now or do we choose pain now? I know it's strange. It's not Western. It's not culturally hip. But we choose the way down, trusting that God will raise us at the last day. He's worth it. The church is worth it. The people outside these walls that he loves are worth it. The way up is down. So as every preacher has always lived and loved to say, let's get down. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be in your word together for a time of worship as your church. I do pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that will use this passage to lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that your spirit would draw them. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of our opportunity and mandate to live according to the gospel day by day. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.